Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. At the end of the day, love and compassion will win. Those are the inspiring words of my guest, Terry Waite, the former special envoy for the Archbishop of Canterbury, author and humanitarian. Working as a hostage negotiator in Beirut in 1987, he himself was taken hostage and held captive for more than four years, almost all of which were spent in solitary confinement. But in even the most trying of circumstances, Terry never let his imprisonment overcome him. While in captivity, he wrote his first book, Taken on Trust, in his head, the first in what was to become a fruitful literary career. This is the story of the mind's eye and how to use it. It led to the triumph of hope over adversity and of love over the fiercest of life's lockdowns. Terry, welcome to Changemakers. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I wonder if we could start um, with that wonderful quote, at the end of the day, love and compassion will win. It seems like a motif um, for your for your worldview. Tell us about it. Well, I suppose if I look back on those years, they were hard years and they were tough years. And... I was uh, at times, you know, quite brutally treated. I was tortured and I did have a mock execution whilst being in the situation of total isolation, sleeping on the floor, no natural light for the, at all, uh, occasionally electric light or a candle and no books or papers for, it was almost five years actually. Um, and I got one visit to the bathroom a day. so. It was quite an extreme situation. It makes lockdown today look uh, relatively uh, relatively luxurious. Well, but I, having said that, of course, it is an extreme situation. And I've always believed that it's from extreme situations that you can take understandings that are applicable to normal life. So back to your first comment. Um, you might think that one was full of of hate, if you like, or certainly anger towards those who captured me. Well, yes, initially I was angry. I was angry because they broke their word. They promised me an, uh, an opportunity to see someone who was about to die. And uh, they broke that promise and captured me instead. I always knew that was a possibility. I wasn't going in totally naive. But uh, I, I, I realised it was a possibility and they did capture me and break their word. Now, you know, when the unexpected happens like that or you're suddenly taken and thrown into a dungeon, of course you'd feel angry. But I, I wrote a small poem about, about that, which I think sums up a feeling. It says, anger is like a consuming fire seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. In other words, saying, we all feel angry. Of course we do. It's part of our nature. But if anger takes possession of you, it'll do you more harm than against those whom it's held. Your experience, 23 hours and 50 minutes of, of every day. I'm wondering in terms of how you compare and contrast the the Terry that went into this at the moment of your own kidnapping and, and, and the moment of your release, if you were to sum up the arc of your own personality and how you entered and how you left, this most harrowing of circumstances, how, how do you think it changed you? Well, I think at the time, I, I wasn't at all sure. I thought it was a totally negative experience. Um, and as I said, I, as I, got, I got over the anger. Um, and I, I, 
realized quickly that when you're in a situation, a solitary situation, when you're alone for a long period of time, you tend to be introspective. And anybody who has any deep introspection and is honest with themselves will discover, one might say, the two sides of their personality, the light and the dark, good or evil, call it what you will, negative, positive. The danger of that is that when you come across the negative side, which is in all of us, there's a tendency to become depressed mm. and to fall into depression. And, you know, sometimes that can lead to real mental disturbance. And when the you... way to deal with it, of course, is to recognize, first of all, that we're all made the same way. Uh, we all have the negative side and somehow to try and work for a greater degree of balance and inner harmony. Right. When you talk, though, about the light and the dark side, I think when people think about Terry Waite, they'll say, I can see the light of a good human being that did amazing things. When, and, and I think people would, would readily relate to that. When they might hear you talk about the light and the dark um, in, in your own life, when, when you think about what the dark means to you and, and, and how it manifests itself, what, what was going through your mind at that time that, that, that made you think that, that made you confront that, and what was it to you? Well, the, the dark side is, is, in my case, the feeling in that situation of depression, of feeling that I was totally isolated, totally forgotten, totally worthless. And, um, and of course, that was uh, added to by the fact that one was constantly interrogated, uh, one was beaten, and one had to face, as I said earlier, a mock execution. Mm. So it doesn't do a great deal for your own self-esteem, put it that way. And uh, when, uh, but then, of course, that uh, when one has to grow into the recognition that um, there's there's more to the to, to your character than just the dark side. And one of the ways in which I worked for a greater degree of inner integration was by through words, through language through writing poetry in my head. And I've got this belief that good language, like good music, has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. Mm. And although I was denied music, I had no music, um, I could remember that which I'd listened to. And you know, the music of Elgar in particular, because that, for me, Elgar and his music somehow sums up the spirit of my own country. And, and did, did you feel that, I mean, obviously, this was a journey into imagination. It was a journey, quite literally, into the mind's eye of actually writing books in, in, in your head, um, things that you were to go on to publish. When, when you went into this experience, it strikes me that First of all, you were a man of faith, but you were also a man of action. You know, you were in there to negotiate the release of, of, of hostages. Um, you had a job to do. Um, you then had over four years where I suppose you could start to um, understand more about yourself and what made you tick. I mean, were you a man of writing and letters before you went into this, or was that something that you feel is one of the one of the legacies of what you went through? 
Well, as you say, before going into captivity, I mean, I'd been engaged with hostage work for, for some years and had uh, been instrumental in enabling the release of many people from Iran, from Libya and elsewhere, Uganda and so on. Um, but then suddenly, you know, all activity comes to an end, as you might say, all outward movement. And you're there in this dark room by yourself, with yourself. Um, I suppose the answer to it is that, of course, there was no possibility of, of reading. There was no possibility of movement because I was chained by hands and feet to the wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day. And so what do you do? There, you say, well, what is open to me? And what is open to you is exactly what you said in your question, your imagination. You've got to keep yourself mentally alive. Now, by writing uh, in my head, that was one way of keeping my mind moving. But I, I kept it moving in other ways. I mean, I'd been absolutely appalling all my life at mathematics. <laughs> Arithmetic. I mean, it's always... your own version of Sudoku, were you? And <laughs> Numbers have always scared me. I, never, I can never understand them. And as for algebra... Might, a lot of us my, might associate with that, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> and as for algebra, my goodness. Mm. You know, but... I used to do, I used to set myself mathematical problems in my head just to keep my mind alive and, um, you know, try and work them out and prove them. Simple long division or something or other, you know, multiplication, that's usual stuff, but very long numbers and see if I could remember them to keep my mind moving and ticking over when I wasn't writing. I wrote dozens of short stories, most of which have lost now, lost forever, but... Mm. That was that's what you have to do, I think, in a uh, when you are in a situation of, of kind of many in lockdown. This applies too. Keep yourself mentally alive. Mm. And 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 I suppose you know we spoke about this before this interview in terms of your coping strategies. But before we get on to that, I mean, obviously there were there was another part of this story that really came home to me in, in that I hadn't appreciated that you you're also an asthmatic and. You know that that is a that that I'm I'm an asthmatic um, also, and it kind of made me think what it must have felt like to have been denied things that we take for granted in our daily lives, like medication, and about the potential for panic and anxiety and all of those. I, I guess demons to be released in terms of not being in control of of, of things as basic as as your own health. I mean. I feel it's, it is worth digging into a bit in terms of just how that made you, how that made you feel and respond on that day-to-day -day level. Well, fortunately, for the first four years, I kept in reasonable health. I mean, I think my, my, my asthma is often an allergic reaction. You know, I'm allergic to dog hair and that sort of stuff. And fortunately, there were no dogs around. So, <laughs> but in the last... In the last uh, few couple of months, I, I became seriously ill with a bronchial infection and I was really very ill. And that was when they moved me to be in the company of other hostages, uh, three other hostages, Terry Anderson and John McCarthy were there. And I'll tell you an interesting little story about that. Um, I was in a bad way. I didn't realize at the time how bad it was. Later on, Terry Anderson told me that I frequently collapsed unconscious and he thought 
I was going to die simply because I couldn't get my breath. I had to sit up day and night with my back against the wall, just couldn't lie down. And at night, we were chained. We had about two feet between us and we were chained, all of us chained to the wall. And at night, Terry would just lean across and he put his hand on mine. He didn't say anything. And you know, that was tremendously comforting and reassuring. And ever since I, I realized now that sometimes, you know, when I used to visit people who were desperately ill, I'd sometimes say to myself, what am I going to say? And I realized it doesn't really matter what you say. Mm -hmm. What really matters is the fact that you're there, you're present with somebody, another living human being who is there and who cares. And that to me was a, was a great lesson and a great understanding. I mean, I suppose that, that company and that care, but other parts of the story, um, I think really do strike you when you read about them, um, your effort and determination to maintain your own dignity, um, even down to trying to press your own trousers <laughs> and, and actually sort of make sure that you, you scrubbed up well, even, I mean, I mean that kind of, that, that self-respect and how you maintain that. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are living in this kind of life of lockdown that we're going through at the moment that go, how do you do that? What are the, what are the kind of, what's, what's the, what's the, what's the internal process to sort of keep that, keep that discipline and to keep that sense of rigor about yourself? Well, as a young man, um, I was in the end of national service days, you know, I was uh, uh, put into the Grenadiers and uh, whilst it was a pretty rough existence, I can tell you, we were knocked around there. And, uh, but it did teach me something to keep respect for yourself, you know, to turn out smartly. And this rather ridiculous story, really, but uh, you've mentioned it. Uh, initially, for the first week or first two weeks, I had my own clothes. And I managed to be able to get my trousers off uh, and at night. And I was, had a mattress on the floor and I put them under the mattress to press them. Press them. And yeah. the guards thought I was totally nuts. <laughs> and then uh, when I asked for shoe polish, they thought, no, oh, this is too much. <laughs> they took my shoes away and they took my clothes away. But the important point being, somehow, you know, in, here in lockdown, try not just to slop around all day in a dressing gown or whatever, you know, Try and keep a reasonable degree of, of pride in yourself and your appearance, um, because th that matters. It does matter the way in which you approach life and mm. the way in which you look after yourself. I mean, I mean, we'll get down onto you know the lockdown we're all living through in a moment, but there, there were just one <laughs> or two other little vignettes I wanted to, to sort of pick up on on the stories that that you know one of the guards gave you a book called Great Escapes which i thought you you know talk about truth being stranger than fiction just just to, i mean i mean did, did that allow you to see the the humor in in the situation as well as the desperately dark experience you were living through well he did bring me he didn't know what he was going to bring me he he he, he, he it was eventually it was when i first got a book and uh, he'd no idea what he what he was buying and he passed me this book and I laughed out loud when I took my blindfold off because it was great escapes. Um, mm. and, uh, but there's another story too, uh, uh, which made me laugh. A rather grim situation actually, because uh, early on in the experience, 
uh, I was taken blindfolded into a room, sat on a chair, and someone stood behind me. And the, uh, then I was told to lift the blindfold, and uh, opposite me was a camera with a chap with a balaclava operating it. And they said, tell, us, tell the story of your life. Start now. So I thought, right, you've asked for the story of my life, you'll get it. And so I began. And uh, I'd been going for about 25 minutes, and I got to the age of about six. Uh, you know, it was a long life. And I heard this peculiar noise behind me. And I couldn't work out what it was. And I heard it again. Then I realized what it was. The chap guarding me behind me was sitting on a chair and he'd fallen asleep and was <laughs> snoring. <laughs> so therefore, there's a warning. Be careful if you read the story of my life. <laughs> I mean, I want, I want it. Well, I mean, I'm, obviously people will be listening to the story of the interview, so hopefully we're going to keep them awake, Terry. But I mean, just on, <laughs> on the thing about, the, about your, your captors, I mean, did it on, on a human level, did you relate to each other over time or did that just never happen? No, not really, because they were told they mustn't speak with me. Um, I, I, you see, I wouldn't let them off the hook. Um, I have, let me just say a quick word about that. Um, I did not agree for one moment, of course, with the way in which they behaved. But I could understand why they did what they did. And that's, that's a very big difference. You know, many of these young lads have come from situations of, of warfare and deprivation, politically, socially, economically, religiously, and have been drawn into this organisation. There's another story which I'll tell you about that. John McCarthy and Brian Keenan were together and the food became very bad. And one day, they, they, the, the head man came to see them. He said, well, what is it you're getting? And they told him, he said, that's wrong. And he looked into it and he discovered the story, the old story, that the guard had been providing them with food, had been given money, he pocketed half and used the other half on food. So they took that lad out and shot him mm. because they said, cheaters on small matters and you'll give the whole game away if someone comes along with a big bribe. Now, the point being there, that once a young person who's been pretty well dispossessed and frustrated, joins the organization, suddenly gets a new lease of life, gets a purpose, gets an identity, um, uh, but has, there's no escape because they're in, they're in. And that's a very similar dynamic, if I may say so, to the dynamic that's operative in gangs that we see today, where youngsters mm -hmm. get in and uh, given the new lease of life, if you like, and then a court. So um, one could understand the, uh, the the fact that they did what they did, but not agree with it. Mm. Let's let's go now to the end of your incarceration, the, the moment of freedom, and to ask you to summon up that sense that this is over. How did it happen? And try and evoke for us that, that moment, if you can, in terms of what it meant to you. Well, it, it's less dramatic than one might imagine because um, throughout the whole of the uh, almost five years, I've been told that, oh, you'll be going home. 
you'd be going home. And on a couple of occasions, they'd even brought clothes in. Um, but it never happened. And then you begin to say, and this is just one other point I would like to make too. Um, part of the secret, again, is learning to live one day at a time. Recognize that life is now, not tomorrow, uh, now. And try and fill it out as much as possible now with what you've got. To and live in the moment. Live in the moment, exactly it. That sums it up perfectly. But having said that, they came in finally with clothes, which didn't fit, but that didn't matter. Um, and then I was taken out and the usual form of transport put into the boot of a car. Mm. Um, incidentally, there's a nice little story, amusing story about that. When I was being moved from solitary to be with others, they blindfolded me, threw me into the boot of a car. I was tied up with masking tape and I managed to get the tape off my hands and off my mouth because I realized there was another body in there, in the back of the car. So I said, huh, not much room in here. And a voice came back and said, until you came in, there was plenty of blooming room. <laughs> and that was John McCarthy. John was in the back. And that's when I first met him. It's the first meeting with him in the boot of a car. But having said that, um, I was put into the boot of a car for final release, taken to another vehicle, which was driven by a Syrian intelligence official. And we drove from Lebanon to um, Damascus. And there I went into um, Syrian uh, intelligence headquarters. And they said, what do you want? Is there anything you like? Just come out, what would you like? And I said, going back to my old army days, I'd like a haircut and a shave. <laughs> I look like the wild man of Borneo. <laughs> so they brought in a little chap from the street, a little barber with, a, with his little leather case. And he gave me a haircut and trim my beard. Uh, well, now I feel much better. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you talk to you, Terry, I mean, and you are such a positive person. And, you know, and, and listening to you, if you if you did, if you weren't focusing on the, you know, the actual detail, you could, you could, you could almost imagine you were listening to a very, a very happy story. And I suppose the thing is, is that you, you have taken so much inspiration out of what others might see as a profoundly negative, difficult, you know, terrible situation. And I'm sort of thinking, when you sort of came out of that, I mean, we often talk about things like post-traumatic stress disorder. We talk about, you know, the, really the, the challenge of people that have been through something so, so often so terrible as that. And I'm just thinking how you coped and what you learned about yourself in the immediate aftermath. Well, a good point, yeah. You see, I think within, the, within every seeming tragic situation in life or difficult situation, like, for instance, now, lockdown, what have you, you find the seeds of something new. And seeds take time to grow. So when I came out, of course, I was in a bit of a state. It took me, I, I mean, we went on holiday as a family. And to this day, I have not one recollection of that holiday, you know, even forgotten where it almost, it was overseas, but I have lost all detail of it. I was walk, sort of walking in a trance initially. And it took me about 
oh, 12 months, I suppose, to come out of it. I wouldn't say that I was suffering from uh, the negative effects of post-traumatic stress, but it did take time. And what I, what I, someone gave me good advice. They said, when you come out of a situation of trauma, when you've been through a traumatic situation, take it as though you're coming up from the seabed. If you come up too quickly, you get nitrogen in the blood, you get bends, the bends. If you take it gently, you'll be fine. And I was very fortunate because I was elected to a fellowship at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and could sit in a little room there with a blank sheet of paper and put down on paper uh, what was the eventual the book was written in my head was then put on paper and um this was taken on trust taken on trust yes i mean i want to come on to that in a moment because i suppose the final part of the puzzle and i suppose in in many respects a lot of people will be listening to this and they'll be thinking goodness this is so massive such a you know such an such a big story in terms of one person's um triumph over a very difficult situation which of course you know, a lot of people are, are are living through the pandemic and they are dealing with anxiousness, they're dealing with trauma, they're dealing with fear, they're dealing with many, many different um, emotions and will listen to a, a story like this to try and draw out lessons for, for their own life. And I suppose, you know, the, the thing that um, is supposed to be the piece of the puzzle that we haven't spoken about is the role for you in terms of faith um, getting you through this or indeed um, being challenged by faith in terms of actually being in such a very, very difficult position in terms of whether you ever questioned it. And I suppose that before we just move on to the literary side, which I think is a, a big a big part of this story, I'd just like to just touch on, on that element of your relationship with faith um, as it pertained to your experience in Beirut. Well, I mean, that's a, a, a massive subject, but let me try and condense, give you a, a shortish answer. It's this, that um, I don't believe that if you claim to have faith, you are necessarily going to get special protection. I think you take your, your chance along with the rest of uh, humanity. Um, having said that, I could say in the face of my captors, you have the power to break my body and you've tried because I was beaten. You have the power to bend my mind and you've tried because I was interrogated. But my soul is not yours to possess. Now, if you were to ask me for a precise definition of soul, I wouldn't be able to give it because I think uh, I was in that context, I meant the total person that I am. And that is not yours to possess because it lies in the hand of God. Who is God? What is God? A great mystery. I can't explain, but I can say this, that part of the journey in life is to grow more closely to the mystery that lies within and the mystery that lies beyond. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things about faith is that it gives you a framework um, like rather like handrails on a staircase. The staircase leads you on. Faith of the handrails, the structure. And we all need structure. And therefore, you know, there are different structures. There's a Christian structure. There's an Islamic structure. There are structures that go right across the world. They should all be leading you towards 
a greater understanding and interpretation mm. of mystery within and beyond. Because I'm wondering, I mean, let's move on to literature, because I'm wondering, it feels to me like you explored ideas through your writing, that actually that structure, that search for understanding is a part of your poetry, it's a part of your writing, and, you know, this is a this is a a full literary career now, Terry, isn't it? Everything from you know books about your experiences to children's literature. I mean that the whole you've got the whole gamut and everything in between. Is that also part of the quest for understanding through writing? Do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, I think I've been irritating to some people because I've written you know different types of books. They're never sure what's coming next. They thought we thought we were going to follow this follow this fellow in a certain way. Then bang. You know, you've got a book of so-called poems, and then bang, you've got a children's stories, the tales of Tommy Twitchnose. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen them. All. I mean, it's 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 quite a back catalogue, Terry. I mean, but but it, but it, but a lot of people do find that that writing and expression is goes hand in hand with them having a better understanding about the world in which they're living in. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and the great thing, though, you know, the thing is when I when I came out. One of the positive things too, and this this will affect some people today who are in in in, in lockdown, you know, who are facing an uncertain future, uh, where the job's gone or is likely to go, and where income is becoming increasingly difficult. I mean, I had pretty well my salary had been paid, but I didn't have much when I came out. But I said this experience now means that I'm not going to take up my job, which was open to me. I mean, it still kept open for me. I'm going to set out and I'm going to earn my own living by writing and lecturing. And I'm going to give my time away to the various organizations like Hostage International and Work with the Homeless. I'm going to give them my time. And now, had I not had that experience of deprivation, I would never have had the courage to launch out in that way. I wouldn't have been able to, because I've been so accustomed to a regular salary. But because I've been and then accustomed to all of them to be knocked around in that way, I could say, yes, take it. And, you know, I've not had a salary, a regular salary for 30 odd years. I always loved um, an Irish, Irish Murdoch quote. She said that jump and a net will appear. Yeah. And it, it strikes me that when you try and um, summarise the career and experiences of Terry Waite at, at 81, um, that it's very difficult to actually say, you know, I, I'm interviewing a, a humanitarian, an author, um, somebody that has had an incredible career behind them. But when, when you start to, th- I'm thinking about sort of looking at the life and the lessons that you've learned about how to lead a life well lived and the advice you'd give to others about coping with the very human conditions of love and loss, of hope and fear, of many of those, I guess, twin travellers in life. What, what's, what's the advice you, you, you'd provide to listeners, do you think? Well, I would say this. I mean, you look. I look back on my life and I've made some, you know, fundamental mistakes at times. I've been, well, I have, like anybody else, I suppose, or one has been far from perfect. But somehow what, I, what I've learned is that don't give up. You've got within you uh, abilities and capacities that you never realize, and they can be realized. And sometimes it takes adversity 
to bring them out. And um, really, I've just been persistent. I've kept hope alive. And in so doing, uh, I've tried also, and it's kept, I'll tell you one good thing about all this. It, it's one thing to have sympathy with people who find themselves in difficulty. But if you've been through a hard time yourself, that can lead you to empathy. Sympathy is to feel sorry for. Empathy is to say, I know exactly how you feel. I can understand that. And it need not really bring you down. You can work through it. And it can be eventually an asset rather than the other thing, the other way around. Terry Waite, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you, Michael, and all the very best.